let's get started. Nikos, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nikos. I'm from Greece, as you can tell from the accent and the long surname. And I'm here to discuss my latest books, Identity Politics and Tribalism, the New Culture Wars. So, and you're also a senior lecturer in social sciences at York St. John's University, that's right? Yes, I work at York St. John's University and I also work with the Ayn Rand Institute and the Ayn Rand Center UK. So anything that uh, has to do with the book are obviously my... So as usually they say, people have helped me to write the book, but the mistakes are mine. So I would say it this way. So the book is, let's say, a journey which I've been influenced by some ideas, particularly the ideas of objectivism. But the final result is the result of someone who is still like a student in the realm of ideas and he's experimenting with ideas. So it's, it's mostly like a journey that I'm also taking with the reader, trying to figure things out. Yeah, because this book sort of, um, we'll, get, we'll get into it, we'll talk about the structure, but it very much represents sort of global examples, doesn't it? It's not just sort of limited to specific examples in your life in the UK or Greece and that sort of thing. It's very well, you know, good geographical spread. Um, and you're also the author of two books. So this is your second book. The first one is The Rise of Lifestyle Activism. Is that right? Yeah, but that was a, a book that it's what we call academic book, which means it's not read, it's too expensive and it's, so it's a book that didn't have any, you know, major impact or anything, but it was in a way focusing on the journey of the left and what has changed from the old left to the new left and how we went from the old left, which was for material progress, at least in theory, who was for empowering everyday people, trusting the working class, or as, again, in theory, that was the slogan, to today's left, which is more ambivalent, to put it mildly, towards ideas such as uh, material progress, technology, and who sees most people with distrust, who sees them as mostly as a nuisance, that, as a nuance that needs to be managed and that needs to be, that mostly people need to save, to be saved from their bad self. So that was the, the first book. The first book focused mostly on the left. Okay. All right. And this book, you know, I, I, one, things I, one of the things I like about this book is how in depth you go into the sort of different, you know, the left and the right and the revolution since World War II, uh, you know. So, so this book, a keyword that stuck out for me, and one of the main reasons I actually purchased it was because of the keyword tribalism. I thought that was very interesting. And I know you've done a few talks on tribalism on the internet, and that's definitely a key theme in this book, but it's about much more than that, obviously. So what were your intentions in writing this book? So I was trying to write a book about, let's say, the current situation, the current condition to put in Marxist terms, like what is happening out there? And I was trying to find what is the key theme, the thread that connects the different, let's say, battlefields, the different areas where we have this class in the culture today. And I thought maybe it has to do with free speech, but no, it's not only free speech because it goes beyond free speech. So I thought that there has to be something, the one in the many, to put it in, let's say, Aristotelian terms. What is the one thing which is in common in most of the political and social phenomena that we see today. And I thought it's tribalism. Tribalism in terms of you put on some particular lenses, the lenses of tribalism, and this is how you view the world. And it's not, tribalism is not the same as having a, let's say, 
a strong group or having networks of solidarity. Tribal is more as an epistemological phenomenon. What does this mean? It means related to how you view the world and how you view yourself and how you view other people. And you view them mostly through the prism of the group. The group becomes your horizon. The group becomes who you are. And this could be a group such as an unchosen one, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your, uh, your nation could be. But also, more and more, we see this also applying in politics, where people are affiliated with one group or another, not so much based on ideas, because as we'll probably discuss later, we don't see much significant differences between left and right, whatever these terms mean, in terms of ideas. And yet we see these groups retaining this conflict between them. So all these things, all these phenomena, I think tribalism is a common denominator, which cannot in itself explain what's happening in the world, but it's a very good starting point. Okay. And if we, if we start with that, um, with the concept of tribalism, um, I think if you asked a lot of people what that is, you know, a lot of people would probably say a tribe is something like, you know, a, a group of people living in a very simple rural lifestyle, but you've already started to break it down for us. Uh, a tribe is essentially the definition of tribe that you're applying here. That is essentially the group um, with which you associate in everyday life. That's the lens through which you look at the world? Is, is that right? Is that the definition of tribalism you're working yes, with? Yes, it's the last thing you said, the lens with, through which you view the world. So many people use the term tribe in a positive way, and I can see why it's positive. For example, they say, these, these are my friends who are my tribe. Or particularly in like self-development, particularly with, among men, you hear the term men need a tribe, which means they need a group of peers, who are going to put them on the test, who are going to motivate them, who are going to, through healthy competition, make it, everyone makes the best of himself. That's not what I'm talking about. The problem becomes when this group with which you associate overrides your own judgment on how you see the world. When this group through which you associate, it's not anymore that through which group we want to accomplish something positive or I want to become a better person. This group becomes how you view the world, in which case everything goes for the group and the outer group is completely to be, uh, to be blacklisted, it's to be condemned. And there are so many examples. I can give you uh, most of and and think about it in political terms, right? Think about it this way. Think about the double standards. When our side does something, it's okay. When the other side does the same thing, it's very bad. Very simple examples. Obama, when he was president, visits for the first time a US president in decades, visits Cuba. What's the reaction by the conservatives? Treason. You sanction evil. You are actually, uh, this, is, this is a betrayal for what the United States stands for. Okay. Some years later, Trump visits Kim Jong-un. What's the reaction by the Republicans? 4D chess. Trump is a, like, he's a peacemaker. Someone should have done it, finally he did it. You basically have the same situation and you have different reactions to the same situation. 
Or again, with the, I mean, the most obvious example, the most obvious example was in May of 2020, late May. So this was a time where within the first months of the pandemic, this was the time, if you remember, when some people in the States, in the United States, mostly conservatives, started some protests about the lockdowns. And everyone on the other side was outraged. How dare you? We are in the middle of a pandemic. Don't go out. Don't protest. The murder of George Floyd happens, and we have the months of protest. And you have the exact opposite script. Now the conservatives say, that's ridiculous. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And the left says, well, no, but now it's, it's, it's for an important cause. So therefore, it's totally, totally worth it. Same situation, different standards. Why? Because on the one on the one time, it was our group who did it. Therefore, whatever our group does is good. Then the other people are doing it who are not us. Therefore, they're evil. Therefore, we don't, they, don't, they never get the benefit of the doubt. Therefore, it is to be criticized. It is to be condemned. So, I mean, a lot of the things you're describing right there, that whole concept of double standards, you know, that's something that I think has existed throughout a lot of history and just is part of human nature. So does the timing of this book suggest that something's happening new that hasn't happened before? Or is this perhaps um, maybe a first sort of, you know, a study into the concept um, in a way that hasn't been done before? So you're right, the concept. And again, travel is something that happens first and foremost in one's mind, in which case it has definitely always been there. But what we see lately is that it has become center, the center of politics, the center of the culture. It has become something where you wouldn't expect to see it at that particular uh, magnitude. And uh, let me give you a very simple example. Do you remember the famous Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson interview? Uh, no, I don't personally. It's that, it's, it's, it's that time where Jordan Peterson is in English TV. And the journalist, because she wants to show her credentials that she's part of the good guys, she treats him very, very, very badly. She treats him, she asks him very unprofessional questions. I mean, in my view, she treats him in a very unprofessional way. Now, it used to be the case that as a journalist, you have to be at least objective or pretend to be objective and neutral when you deal with something. But in the era of tribalism, it doesn't matter. This other guy is part of another tribe, is part of another group. Therefore, all the standards go out of the window. So travelers has always been there, but at least throughout good times in the West, the idea was that this is not something cool. This is not something which should be at the center of our existence. It's something that we must keep at bay, or we have to at least pretend that there is such a thing as reality, reason, and that we have to you know, we have to abide by that. Now, I think most of these things are out of the window. And uh, that's, that's what I think has actually changed. That tribalism has come at the right time in, in a way. Because think about it this way. What is at the center of tribalism? It's the idea that I cannot think for myself. And also, the group makes me who I am. Put differently. My environment makes me who I am. I'm a black person, therefore my environment makes me X. Or I'm a woman, therefore the cards are skewed against me. So these ideas that have to do mostly with what? It's, it's a kind of determinism. It's a kind of an idea that tells you that 
your life is not in your hands. Haven't we been listening this for decades? One kind of determinism or the other, that human beings are not really capable of doing things, of bringing change, of taking care of themselves, of having agency to overcome difficulties. So where you nurture this idea that human beings are this almost without will, without agency, then they need to cling from somewhere. So where, will, where are you going to cling from? From the group. So this is why now, because now is the, the culmination of this long intellectual tendency that says that as individual, you don't have agency. Your fate is, is, is in some ways predetermined. And again, this is something which is a dominant idea, but it doesn't have to be this way. There were times in history where it did, it was not this way. And usually these were good times. But when you see human beings as they're kind of this imprisoned in boxes, the box of identity or the box of uh, very mutable characteristics, then again, tribalism is the next step because it's the idea, it's the idea that you cannot make sense of the world yourself. Therefore, you need the group to give you guidance. Yeah. But notice, if you cannot think, who can think for you? It's like people who are blind, they kind of try to find guidance from each other. So when you throw the idea of reason and the idea of I can think for myself and I can have independent judgment, and you undermine this idea constantly through determinism, through the idea that uh, we don't have free will, or through the idea that we are prisons of our identity, then the obvious result down the way is, uh, is tribalism. So uh, I want to look at... Um tribalism in the context of politics um and one of the quotes that you you know, you know from the book you said political movements are becoming more a place for people to find a home rather than actually fighting a cause is that i mean is has it has it not always been like that you know have people not really used um political movements to find a sense of belonging sure but there used to be the case that political movements had significant ideological differences between them. Therefore, whether you find a house in the fascists or in the Stalinists or in the liberals, it used to have a big difference. It used to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So now, can someone explain to me what are the significant, and I mean significant, differences between the left and the right? Do, do they disagree on the role of the state? No. Their major disagreement is whether tax should be 36% or 34%. Do they disagree on the basic things that, for example, my body is mine, I can do whatever I want with it? No, they all agree that no, you're basically your body belongs to the state. That's why you cannot take drugs. That's why euthanasia is still an issue which is, uh, which is heavily contested, uh, which is why, for example, when a pandemic comes, the, the government is going to tell you uh, which uh, drugs you can or when you can take a, the, a vaccine, how many months it needs to be checked. So all that stuff, do you see any significant difference between the left and the right? Or do you see any significant difference between the left and the right when it comes, for example, to the environment? We have these days the big climate meeting and again, whichever your point of view is on what needs to be done, do you see significant differences between the two sides? I mean, 
the issue of energy is one of the last remnants where you can actually find some differences, particularly in the United States, though not in the UK, between, let's say, the conservatives and the Republicans. But in most of the other issues, in most of the other issues, they have become very, very close. And again, compare how it used to be five decades ago, where you had, for example, strong communist parties in the West, where they said, no, we want a completely different system. We want the revolution. And then your life as you know it is going to be completely different. So what has happened is the things on which we disagree has shrinked. Like the space for political change has shrinked very, very much. And at the same time, how strongly we fight about this very short space where we can have, uh, we can have political disagreements. The disagreements have become so much more uh, frantic and so much more host, uh, bitter. So this tells me that, again, it's almost like football, my team versus your team, because it's not that the one team compared to the other team has so such massive differences when it comes to the big issues, to the very, very big issues. Yeah, you, you know, a talk you gave recently, you, you said this, you said that the left and the right are not so different. And some people, I think, struggle to grasp what you meant. Um, and, you know, when you put it like that, I think, yeah, they probably are quite similar in their, in their content. But I think you were also saying in the way that they behave, they're very similar, aren't they? They both adopt a very tribalist mindset. They behave similarly in a way which is almost embarrassing. Like, think about the issue of free speech, right? Around 2013, 2014, free speech becomes like the line of the battle. So conservatives... And not only concerned, libertarians, people from the left say, look, there, there's a problem here. There's a problem when you cannot speak without being afraid that you're going to be deplatformed or you're going to lose your job or whatever. And they say, we need to do something. There needs to be a cultural change when it comes to this issue, which was you know, a good start. Where do we find ourselves in 2021? We find ourselves where conservatives want to promote, quote, promote free speech. How? By using the power of the state, by saying, for example, to Twitter, uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to do what we say, otherwise the, state, the, the power of the force will be against you. Or now we see this uh, idea that uh, I hear it more and more, we need to ban critical race theory. What does this even mean, ban critical race theory? How do you ban an idea? Like, Notice, not just ban from schools, ban critical race theory general. So although, although they think that they're so different from the left, their misunderstanding of what free speech is, is in a way equally bad as it is with the left. Or maybe, okay, I, want, I don't want to be unjust, not equally bad, but it's bad as well. So, or see this when it comes to the issue of, to the issue of, uh, of identity politics, right? Now we move a bit away from politics, but think about it this way. There were some people who thought that the feminist movement is, uh, has gone wrong, has gone too far, as they would put it, that they are intolerant, that they view women as a group, that they view men as kind of a holistic one thing and not as different individuals. And they said, this is something needs to be done. And what was what was actually done? 
these other movements, the so-called, you can call it manosphere or other people call it with different names, where you see some of the exact same traits that were wrong with feminism repeated there. Seeing all women as a group, all men as a group, and kind of having this static view that women are the oppressors and men are basically victims. So you think that you reply, that you react to the other side and you end up basically having the same mindset and sometimes exactly the same methods with the other side. Like I've seen, I've seen campaigns, for example, from conservatives trying to have people fired because of something stupid they did, which is exactly what is their complaint from the left when it comes to so-called cancel culture. So this is why I think that when it comes to the essence, they're more similar and more alike than they'd like to admit. Let's move on to um, intersectionality. I thought this was a really interesting um, concept. Can you first explain to us what intersectionality is? And then we'll talk a bit about how it can, how it applies in some okay. real life examples. So how intersection, okay, I'm lucky because I have a book here which looks something like intersection. Okay, as in this is a road, this is one highway and this is one highway is this and another highway is this. Yeah. If you find yourself here at the center, you are at this you 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 are at the center of this highway but also of this highway so the idea is that the same applies in a way to oppression so let's say if you are a woman and this is the the axis of oppression of the gender oppression if you are a woman you've experienced oppression as a woman but if you're a black woman now you also experience oppression as a black woman and here for example if we had the if we had the let's say the uh, sexual orientation axis as a lesbian black woman, you experience uh, oppression from three different sides. So the idea is in its original, let's say, there's something to it, which says that there are some people who, because of their characteristics, they might have, it, have a tougher time due to prejudices in society when it comes from people who are, let's say, from groups that face a bit of prejudice, but not a lot of prejudice. So the idea in itself is not completely, you know, it's, it makes sense. It makes sense, at least in theory, that, yeah, it could be the case that there's some people who, because they are part of more than one group that are oppressed, they face uh, problems. I mean, think about it simply this way. Imagine in the Third Reich, you're a Jew and you're a homosexual and you're a communist. Like, you've had it bad no matter what. Like, the Nazis are going to come from you no matter how, because you are every identity that they hate. So this is the idea of intersectionality, that you are on the intersections, let's say, of, of identities that are not, that are less privileged. Let's put it this way. So you're in the intersection of multiple tribes. That's one thing. Um, and the other, the other component is each of those tribes is typically um, one that uh, tends to face more oppression in this world than another. Yes, they wouldn't use the term tribes. They would use the term identities. 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 All right, okay. Let's put it this way so that we do justice to what the people who came up with the term would say. So this, so, is, this is in short the idea. And again, you can imagine situations where this idea makes very much sense. Now, we might discuss why this idea uh, is not always helpful, but I think as a starting point, we are in a good place of having understood what we're talking about. 
So that begs the question, if people have multiple identities, and I can say that they probably do, um, which one of a person's multiple identities tends to dominate them? Is that even an easy question to answer? No, that's impossible to answer, but it's a very good question. So think about yourself when growing up. So I, I'll think of myself. I was supporting one particular team. So that was one identity. My political ideology was another identity. And this would switch all the time because my character was developing. My character was still become, I was still becoming who I am. And I mean, this journey in a way never ends. The problem is the problem comes when there is no character and your whole kind of view is which are my different groups or when these groups significant or the beliefs in these groups significantly limit how you view your potential in the world. So put very simply, if you see your participation in these groups as a, again, a box, a prison, then this can be a very huge limiting belief because again, you view the world not as a capable agent, but as a de facto victim, a victim even before you were victimized. And this is, again, this is, it's hurtful first and foremost to yourself. And this is something relatively, relatively new. So uh, I think, of, I can think of examples, let's say from the ancient Greek, I think it was, was it Epictetus? He was a philosopher who was a slave and he got freed and then he became a philosopher. But the expectation was never that, oh, I come from a background that was oppressed. Therefore, now my life is a kind of, you know, what can I do? My limits are very low because I'm going to be, I'm basically scarred for life. This idea that your background or the historical background that your group comes is going to limit you is something which is, again, it's the product of a culture of low expectations, of a culture that says that, well, human beings can't do much. You know, it's either I was born this way or the cards were stuck uh, against me or uh, all these anti-agency beliefs. Let's continue on with the theme of identity politics um, and its relevance in this book. Uh, you know, one of my favorite passages from this book is how is it that so many people, um, working class Americans, men and women, saw a billionaire mogul who flies on private jets, lives in a mansion decorated in 24 karat gold as one of them and as their man. And the answer was that, in a sense, he is one of them and he is their man. He talks like them. He eats like them isn't particularly interested in the things that they are interested in and doesn't patronize them for being politically incorrect. Now, that to me um, is an example of how citizens of a country were, were looking for someone who embodied their own identity rather than someone who made political sense. And it also suggests politics is being hijacked by a deep-rooted identity crisis. I mean, what, what do you think of that? Um, is that right? That's a great line. Unfortunately, it's not mine. It's a direct quote <laughs> from Amy Tua, but she's on to something there. So, okay, one thing with Trump is, I mean, po politically, you can say whatever you want, but he has the charisma of communication and all that stuff. But he mostly succeeded in one thing, in saying, whatever you hate, I'm not like that. Like the people you hate, and by the way, the people who also don't like you, like the quote, the elites and all that stuff, whatever they are, I'm the different, I'm the opposite. 
I don't care about political correctness. I don't care about recycling. I don't care about your gender pronoun. So he played it very, very, very cleverly. So here's the situation. If there's not any way, any major difference between left and right, then a major point on in which side I'm going to lean is who are the people who are more like me or who do I hate less? Who, who are the people who I feel that they're not part of a different universe? I mean, if you think about it, like the, the academia or the Washington think tanks or the London think tanks, and if you take this and you compare them with an average working class person who, you know, they mind their own business, they're almost not only words apart, but the project of the academic or of the quote metropolitan elite is that these people are the problem and we need to change them. So this conflict between these two worlds, it's very, it arises very naturally. And Trump positioned himself says there is such a conflict, and I'm going to take the side of this group proudly, openly. I'm not going to play by your rules. So this was this was what made Trump very, very interesting. But again, as we said, unfortunately, this is very shallow politics. And that's why, I mean, ask yourselves, those particularly those of you who are pro-Trump and get triggered when anyone criticizes Trump. Trump had at some point the executive, the Congress, and the Senate. If we ask someone 80, after 80 years, or the historian of the future, what was the big thing that Trump did in politics? Not the fact that he triggered the left, not the, the fact that he was fun on Twitter, but what was his big thing? No one's going to remember anything. Like, there was nothing of significance. I mean, he was maybe better in terms of his energy policy. And he was a bit worse when it comes to trade, whatever. But I mean, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't any significant. But because our attention is mostly on the culture wars, on the noise, on uh, you know who is he, he's gonna own the libs and all that stuff. That's why in our mind, Trump was this kind of uh, almost this unique moment in politics. Whereas again, ask yourself what was like what was left behind from the Trump revolution or whatever this thing was. Nothing or not much. I mean, you could say he left something very negative, but nothing which was, let's say, groundbreaking different when it comes to the essence of politics from the pre-Trump era. This was perhaps an individual who really, um, is it right to say that uh, one of his main sources of power was sort of drawing upon, an, you know, playing upon an identity crisis within the public? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But Trump was a, a, a product of this crisis, right? So Trump says, look, I see that there are basically two Americas and I am the representative of that one America. And the two Americas dislike each other so much that if that you, you, that you want someone to say, yes, I am proudly with this, uh, with this uh, side. And you see it in every single issue. And again, the double, the double standards and all that stuff. So, but with two sides that politically, politically, there's nothing very major dividing them. I mean, I'm not saying something super clever here, but many people have pointed out, notice how the program of Trump 
is not miles away from the program of Bernie Sanders when it comes to, you know, the globalization has ruined us and all that stuff. But the tone and the identity, as you said, of the one and the other are so different that in our mind, we see them as kind of two extremes in the political side, which is, is, is nothing of the case. So the substance of the two sides might be the same, but the identity is very different. One that That's a very good with. way to put it. The substance is the same, but in how they view themselves and how they view the other side, they're worlds apart. They're worlds apart. Something I probably should have asked before we um, got into identity politics. Just break down very simply for us. What is it that we mean when we say identity politics? We talk about politics where they have at their center the grievances or the claims of a particular group. Now, you could say that in some way, almost all politics are identity politics. But think about it this way. The old left, the Marxists, were saying that any identity you have needs to be left aside because we all have in common one identity, which is we are uh, exploited by the capitalists. That's why. For example, in the old left, even in later years, in groups that would affiliate with the so-called old left, like the communist parties in the West or whichever, whatever is left of them, they would be very skeptical with, for example, the gay movements, because they would say, yeah, your main identity is not that you're gay. Your main identity is that you're a worker. So this is kind of alienating that you see yourself as gay and not as a worker. Whereas identity politics have become more and more predominant it's your different your identity or as you said with intersectionality your different identities which in a way guide your politics which guide what should be your action yeah. and there are two kinds of identity politics the one is where there is an actual injustice against one group and you say look this group suffers therefore this group needs to be part of let's say this universalist message of human rights the obvious example is the civil rights movement. So what does Martin Luther King say, basically? He says, we want to be like you. We want to have the rights that you have. Whereas you have more and more identity politics, which, which are saying, me and you and the different groups, we don't really have a code of communication because we are different. We understand the world differently. Therefore, maybe we should just you know, keep our distance. And this is really, really bad, in my view. This is... Like this is a guarantee that you will have permanent conflict when based on your immutable characteristics, you believe that you understand the world in a different way from the other group. It's as if saying you're speaking different languages. And if you're speaking different languages, is communication possible? The answer is no. So This is really all about how our identities beyond, as you say, being a worker in a capitalist system, how our identities, how we view ourselves, drives our political beliefs, essentially. Yes, that's a very good way to, to put it. It's almost as if your identity should predict your political beliefs, which is why <laughs> you see the weird thing uh, today, people on the left saying, well, Kanye West is not really a black person. I mean, obviously he is, but he, 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 quote, acts white because he's, he's a Republican. Or, or they will say that, uh, they will say that uh, uh, women who do not like feminism, feminism as the today's political movement, they have, quote, internalized misogyny. 
which means they're not really women. Like they are. So, and th- this is this is exactly it, that your identity should predict where you're going to go with uh, where you're going to go with your politics. Okay. Let's talk about culture wars. Um, I want to read a uh, a passage. You say that the root of the culture wars can be found in the left and the right becoming less confident about their own political and philosophical principles. Can you break down what you mean for us by that and what exactly our culture was? Could you imagine at the time of the Russian revolution or at the time of a big revolution, people fighting about uh, gender pronouns or gender bathrooms or whatever issue is the last thing in the culture wars? So the culture was quite often, in my view, is it shows you that, again, what we fight about politics becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So there's not anymore a major, a significant different worldview. So the point where you focus all your energies, these small issues, I mean, small in the big scheme of things, right? And some of these things, by the way, are not small. I mean, abortion is an obvious example, like that's a big issue. But, but more and more, you see, it's relatively small issues, like you know, the platforming on uh, Twitter, for example. Again, in the big scheme of things, it's, it's, you know, it's a private company. It's not, it's, not, it's not such a big issue. But the fact that the emphasis is there is a very good way for both the left and the right to hide the fact that they haven't got existential differences. But they can say, look, we, we are very much different from these people because, for example, we are against uh, gender uh, pronouns or we are against uh, the teaching of critical race theory or uh, we are against uh, uh, this uh, the baker uh, having to bake the cake for the gay couple or, again, whatever, whatever the, the topic which is in the agenda of the day is. That's why I think that the culture wars are... M- are a mask, are a camouflage to the fact that we don't have significant political battles these days, and the battles are mostly focused in the culture. Now, quite often you might have big political battles, which also translate in culture wars. I mean, the obvious example is, uh, uh, let's say, take the Spanish Civil War, where uh, the left or parts of the left were very much against the state, uh, sorry, very much against the church. So if, if the one side had prevailed, then the culture of the country would significantly be different. But there you had a huge political battle and the culture war was a derivative of that battle. Today, we haven't got big political battles and the culture wars is the main thing. So, but we can't say that about everywhere in the world, can we? Because in many parts of the world, we still do have major, you know, conflicts and political struggles that that are significant. So our culture was very much a Western thing, um, because we tend to have a much more stable, um, you know, a more stable world world in the West. This is a very good question, and I'm thinking out loud here. So, for example, you could say that the Arab-Israeli conflict is, in a way, also a culture war in terms of you have different sides with different views of the world. But again, the culture war doesn't mean only different kind of cultures. It's not the same as the war of civilization as who was that guy who was talking about this in the 
in the 90s. It's mostly that you focus on small, mostly symbolic battles. So when you have a war, take the Arab-Israeli war in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, which is literally a survival war for Israel. The fact that it's a different cultures makes the, the conflict even bigger, makes the conflict even more of an existential one. But again, you have there two very clear ways of life, two very clear different views of what it means to be a, an individual, who your life belongs to and all that stuff. Whereas now you, you are lacking this, at least in the West, we are lacking this clear dichotomy of what is the what are the two options here? What are the what are the two sides? So in a way you are right, it's more of a Western phenomenon because again, there is no other significant political conflict in the West as opposed to other sides of the world. Okay. Okay. You talk about, you know, a lot of things in this book, very different topics, you know, start out with tribalism, identity politics, finish up with the culture wars. But in the end, you say, you know, the most, the most dangerous idea behind many of the world's problems is the loss of our belief in individual agency. So, you know, what are the key things that you want people to take away from this book? Okay. That's a good, that's a good question because reading the book you can very easily get into a very pessimistic mode you can say well everything is lost i have to join a, a tribe because you know what else is to be done and the main point is that tribalism at one level is annoying because it makes politics and the culture the, the public sphere kind of toxic but first and foremost it's destructive for your own mind and i mean i see this from introspection like from time where I throw away my individual judgments. Like, I hate the left so much that uh, Trump is good. And then you think like, wait a minute, what did you do there? Like, you were stupid, basically. So I see it as tribalism literally makes you stupid because you are not in the driving seat. Your mind and your judgments and your critical ability is not on the driving seat. On the driving seat is what is the party line and how much we hate the, how much we hate the other side. So. It, tribalism takes away from what life is about in terms of how you live and flourish as a human being, which is there's only one way to survive and flourish. You see reality, which presupposes that there is a reality because today that this is a notion that many like, people are like, oh, we can't really know reality. Okay, how are you going to live in the world if you don't know reality? So there is a reality, I can understand it, and I can make sense of this world. This is like the enlightenment idea, right? That nature can be tamed, the world can be tamed. I can be the master of my fate by taming the world. Today is like the opposite, like, oh my God, first of all, don't mess with the world because we're going to ruin nature and all that stuff. And who am I to know? And can we even know? So taking the first approach, which is I can know and the world can make sense and I can achieve is a liberating feeling. It's a, it's a feeling that is difficult because it puts your responsibility it's on you. If you do well or if you don't do well, it's on you after some point, right? It's, it's I mean, in relatively quasi-free countries. I mean, if, if you are, you know, if you live in a, in, in, in a slave society, yeah, it's not you cannot expect that life is on you but in 
quasi-free societies, the message should be, you can do stuff. Life is in your hands. But when you see yourself as a victim, when you see yourself as a prisoner of your identity, then immediately this significantly harms your chances of success in life. And the world is a scary place when you think that, oh, I cannot understand it. I cannot make sense of it. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm trapped in this body and in this like uh, mind of mine and I, I cannot make sense. And I need, uh, I need the, the group to feel safety. This is not the way to, to live your life. Is it actually possible really to live in this day and age without being part of a tribe in some way, shape or form? It's almost natural for human beings, isn't it? Okay, here's the most important thing. You're touching now upon the most important thing, which is not to confuse cooperating with others, living with others, loving others with tribalism. The one is healthy because you have some values, you have some goals in life that you have chosen them, and you see other people who share your goals, you see other people who share your values, and you come together with them. This is nice. This is beautiful. This is what, I mean, think about romantic love. This is what makes life beautiful. This is not the same as tribalism. Tribalism is, I give up my judgment for the group. I give up my individuality for the group. I give up my personality for the group. These two are very, very different. The one having good relationships, having strong communities that you have chosen, not that you happen to kind of dropped in that community. The one is good, the other is bad. The one, you're still a strong individual with agency. The other is you give up agency. You give up the responsibility of thinking. So yes, we can live, we, we can live in communities, in strong networks or solidarity without being tribalist. Tribalism is not an instinct. It's not a biological necessity. It's just laziness. It's just, uh, I don't want to, you know, thinking is too much of a responsibility. I'll do whatever the others are doing. You're talking about groupthink, not giving into groupthink, essentially. I mean, what, what do you say to people who um, would say, you know, the lens through which I view the world is shaped by real events, you know? Yeah. On the one hand, it may, it may you know, uh, in other people's mind, lead to more of a victim uh, mentality, but they are real events. These things do happen, you know? So how do you, wh wh what do you say in those situations? So the question is, how do you interpret the events? So let's say, for example, that you do see in the world out there, and it happens, I mean, in my view, that the left has gone, uh, the left has gone uh, too far. Let's say, let's put it this way. So you see the world out there, right? And you see the left, is uh, you know has gone mad. What's the solution to 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 do the same thing with your right wing tribe and be like the thing you are criticizing? Is this a solution? So you can view the world. You can be very very angry, and you should be angry when you see what's happening in the world. But how you react and how you spot what is the problem? So is the problem the, really the left, or is it the problem that the left has a particular mindset? which is poisonous and destructive. And therefore you have to be very careful to, to, to how to put, to identify what is this bug in the system. And once you identify, you say, this is something bad. I must not be like that. Rather than saying, oh, it's the, the left or it's the right who are the problem. And then not identifying in what exactly is the problem, you become like that. 
So it's about being able to identify what you think are the good and bad things, being able to exercise independent judgment and you forming your it, own identity. The way you put it is exactly how it should be. You identify what the problem is and you think what is the better way to do things? What is the, what is the alternative? Which again, the starting point is first and foremost your life, your own life. Like how, like, is it good for me if I become bitter? If I become what they call like, if I swallow the black pill, I see the, you know, everything is lost. Everyone is after me. Uh, women are after me, the feminists, the SJWs. And, and you become this bitter being where, you know, no, life is about, you know, live your life as good as you can. Try to fight for politics because it's going to make your life better. If you're gonna ruin your life by becoming bitter and by taking by becoming black pilled, then you know that's you're not doing yourself or anyone else any any good. Is that is that term part of um, is that that a specific term black pill? Is that yeah? So <laughs> a very famous term today in the in the culture world is the term called red pill. It's from the film Matrix where yeah. you get the red pill and supposedly you see the world as it is. So the red pill is you see the world as it is. The blue pill is supposedly you are still a victim. The black pill means you view the world and you get that you get desperate. It's like, oh my god, I can't do anything. I give up. Everything is ruined. Everything is destroyed. So yeah, apparently I've heard there's also the white pill, which is like you're more optimistic. But I got confused with the pills. But <laughs> don't worry, you're you're not missing anything significant okay. if you don't know the term black pill. Well, Nikos, thank you very much for this talk. It's been very, very enlightening. If people want to find out more about you and your work, any upcoming talks, how can they find out more? I would say follow me on Twitter on uh, Nikos uh, Sotirakopoulos or Nikos uh, underscore 17, which is my Twitter name. I think that's it. Then check out Ayn Rand Center UK on YouTube. Uh, I participate in many of their uh, events, podcasts and uh, and all that stuff. So these are the two go-to places. And let me say a big thank you. And uh, I, I hope this uh, this uh, series goes well because you are asking very good questions and you put effort in this and uh, I appreciate it. And, and many thanks for having me and for promoting the book. Oh, no worries. So well, thank you very much for coming. Thanks. thanks.